to return to our uh, sermon series uh, through the Old Testament book of Genesis that's entitled The Children of Abraham, A Legacy of Faith. Uh, After this morning's message, we have four uh, weeks left in the series, and then next up, uh, we're going to embark on a a six-week series that provides a, a biblical perspective on some of today's most difficult moral issues. We're going to deal with the the issue of divorce, uh, transsexuality, suicide, uh, the exploitation of children, and a couple other ones that we're going to keep as surprises for you. And then once we're done with that, we are going to uh, move into our Easter series. And then after our Easter series, uh, we're going to start a series through the book of Romans, which will probably take uh, the better part of a year, perhaps a year and a half. So Uh, That's the game plan uh, for the the next year, and uh, with that, let's get started. Wondering, have you ever felt like you simply aren't good enough? That perhaps uh, you have been a mistake, uh, that there's something wrong with you, that you simply don't belong, that you are inadequate, that that you are less than than other people. If that's the case, uh, you're not alone. Uh, Last year in England, uh, they did a a survey of 2,000 young people, ages uh, 22 years old to 38 years old, 38 now, and now that I'm 56, 38 is definitely a young person. And uh, of that group of 2,000 people, 80% of them indicated that they felt inadequate. I mean, that's a, a radically large number, but When I think about it from personal experience, there are many times in my life that I felt that I was inadequate, that that I simply didn't measure up. Uh, If you've been here at Living Water over the years, I have told you about my athletic exploits uh, going uh, through the Central Dolphin School District. Uh, I was a a wrestler uh, at Lower Paxton Junior High, which is now New Love in Christ Church. My only varsity wrestling match and junior high, I got pinned by a guy from East Junior High School in 13 seconds. Uh, my parents took off work to come and see me wrestle. They only lost an hour of work. Uh, I played football for the holy name of Jesus Jets. We never scored a touchdown while I was quarterback on the Central Dolphin High School tennis team. I was the 20th guy on the team, never played a single uh, tennis match, but I was really good at carrying the oranges for the team. Uh, so I know what it means to, to not meet the expectations of others. Heck, I don't even meet my own expectations. And I would imagine that that feeling of not measuring up is probably what was going on in the minds of the four brothers of, of uh, Jacob's family that we're going to examine today. I believe that they felt like they didn't measure up as they they stood beside their dad's deathbed wondering whether they're going to receive a blessing or not. And the men's names were Dan and Gad and Asher and Naphtali. And they were four of the the 12 sons of the Old Testament patriarch by the name of Jacob, whose life we've been spending a lot of time uh, prior to Christmas looking at. Now, There was something different about these four than the balance of their other brothers. And that something that was different was their moms. You see, Gad and Asher's mom was a woman named Zilpah, but she really wasn't Jacob's wife. She was actually his concubine, uh, the, the servant of his first wife, 
Leah, and concubines were basically a, a secondary wife. They were someone who, who you brought into your life who was designed basically to bear children, to, to make your family larger. And then there was Dan and Naphtali. They, too, uh, were born of a mother who was a concubine. Billah really wasn't Jacob's wife. She was uh, the servant of his second wife, Rachel. And while society in the Old Testament considered the kids to be legitimate, they weren't illegitimate kids, while society felt like they were legitimate children, uh, the law, the Old Testament law, allowed the, 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 the father of the children to determine whether or not they would be part of the inheritance. The, 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 the blood children, the full blood children, or however you would say that, they, they were always part of the inheritance. But the ones that were born to concubines could or could not be part of the inheritance. And so as these men stood there and watched their first six brothers receive the blessing, they got to be wondering, is dad going to bless us? Or is he going to cast us aside like he has every legal right to do? Well, that's what we're going to find out this morning. So if you have a Bible with you here in the room, or if you have a, a Bible at home, if you would open up to Genesis chapter 49, uh, we're going to look at verses 16 to 21, Genesis 49, 16 to 21, and if you are able to stand in honor of God's word, that would be fantastic. Genesis 49, 16 to 21. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels, so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gath, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So here we have four of Jacob's sons, all born to concubines. And what's interesting here is uh, these fellows, they're not listed in birth order. They're, they're not even listed in the order uh, of their, their moms. You know, they're not grouped together by mom. And uh, what it appears is that, that this is kind of totally a, a random thing going on. And as I, I consider what would be going on here, and, and this is just purely speculation on my part, I kind of get a picture of, uh, of these four sons born to concubines, kind of gathered together as their own little group, realizing that they may or may not be getting blessed by dad, probably having a conversation, uh, hearing the other blessings that are, that are going to the, the children, their brothers that were born to Leah, and all of this stuff kind of going on, and, and, and they're not really sure exactly what is going to happen to them. But they don't have to wonder for very long, because what they receive is both a blessing and a prophecy, similar to Zebulun and Issachar's blessings that we talked about prior to Christmas. Uh, these blessings for these four sons, they're, they're kind of cryptic. And so what we have to do in order to kind of figure out what they mean and how they, they play out in life is we've got to look 
at, at the people who come after them in, in the other tribes. And so that's what we will ultimately do. We're going to start with Dan. Uh, the blessing to Dan goes like this. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. So the first thing that we notice from, from this blessing slash prophecy is that, that Dan is going to lead one of the tribes of Israel. And this is the first that we hear anything that, that Israel is going to have any tribes, that there's going to be any division in Israel. And, and many times in the Bible, when you see something like this happen for the very first time, what is the indicator is that God is up to something new. There's going to be something new, something ultimately different that's going to happen here. And that's something new and something different it is uh, mentioned in a little bit more detail here at verse 28 of Genesis. It says this, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to them. So what we learn here is that, that Israel is going to be broken up into 12 tribes and that each one of the children of Jacob are going to be the heads over these tribes. Now, folks, it is a huge deal when God places us in a leadership position in his kingdom. That's a big deal. And what we do with that leadership position in God's kingdom will radically impact uh, the way that things go in our lives and the way that things go in the lives of those who we love. Now, this position... Uh, that God places in doesn't have to be a, a huge position. It doesn't have to involve tens or, or hundreds or, or thousands of people. Sometimes the only person that God has us lead is ourselves. And sometimes we do an absolutely miserable job of leading ourselves. Sometimes we lead ourselves right off cliffs and inflict all kinds of pain on ourselves and on others. Now, other times, God, God says, you know what, not only do I need you to lead yourself, or not only do I want you to lead yourself, but I, I want you to lead a spouse, or perhaps I want you to lead uh, some children, or, or perhaps some, some grandchildren, or, or maybe nieces or nephews. Uh, still other times, we find ourselves leading groups of employees or groups of volunteers, and regardless, it is an assignment from God and how we lead and the way that we treat people whom God has entrusted us, it actually matters. So that's the first thing that we learn. The second thing that we notice from Jacob's blessing is that Dan's tribe will be known for attacking people unexpectedly. That's the whole horse viper kind of thing that, that is going on here. So the, the picture that you have is you got a guy, he's riding a horse, he's going down a trail, and there's this snake that's coiled up, hidden away, waiting for the, the horse to walk by. And as the horse starts to walk by the snake, the snake strikes, the horse rears up, and the rider unexpectedly falls onto the ground. And we see these two parts of this prophecy playing out in the manner in which the tribe of Dan deals with the land that's assigned to them in Joshua 19, which happens roughly 500 years after Dan actually receives this blessing. And this is what Joshua 19 says. 
And, and for totally up front, I'm just going to throw this out right now. I am going to butcher these names. Okay, my, my mom is here, and she can attest to you. In second grade, I was a phonics disaster. They gave me all these little workbooks I tried to work through. Never worked really well. So some of you are going to sit there and go, oh, Pastor Mike, this is so easy. It's just phonetics. Well, phonetics, I can't even spell phonetics, all right? So just grant me some grace here. If you really got an issue with my pronunciation, you can write to me at mike at livingwatercc.com. If you want my pay to get docked, send it to pat at livingwatercc.com, and Pat will dock my pay. So here we go. Mike Leonzo butchering names. The seventh lot came out for the tribe of the people of Dan, according to their clans. And the territory of its inheritance included Zorah, Eshtol, Irshamesh, Shalalabin, Aijalan, Ithala, Ilan, Timna, Ekron, El Teka, uh, Gib Bethon, Balath, Jehud, Benabarak, Gathramon, Mejarkon, and Rakkon with a territory over against Joppa. When the territory of the people of Dan was lost to them, the people of Dan went up and fought against Leshem, and after capturing it and striking it with a sword, they took possession of it and settled it, calling Leshem Dan after the name of their ancestor. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Dan according to their clans, these cities with their villages. So nearly 500 years after Dan's blessing from Jacob, God provides Dan's descendants a section of land that extends from the Mediterranean Sea uh, eastward towards the Dead Sea. So we've got a little map here that we're going to pull up. And, and for those of you at home, you're not going to see my little pointer. But, but here is the area that Dan receives. It's on the Mediterranean Sea and kind of moves eastward uh, back towards the, towards the Jordan River. And right in here, you guys will see it right in here. So that's the land that they receive. And they've been uh, provided this land, and they've been told that they're to, to enter into the land, that, that they're supposed to destroy the people in the land, push them out of the land, and, and stay inside of this land and make it their home. But there's a problem. The Danites don't succeed in getting rid of the people. No matter how hard they try, they, they can't shove all of these people out of this land that they, provide, that they receive. And it's at this point that they make a fatal mistake. They decide to settle for less than what God has promised them. God has given them a, a promise. And because it's been hard, they're going to settle for something less than what God has promised. So they leave God's provision and they start to head north to provide for themselves. And this journey is recorded in Judges chapter 18. It's a real long section. I don't want to take the time to read it, so I'm just going to kind of explain it to you. So as the Danites uh, provide, or plan to uh, move to this land that God's, uh, or away from the land that God's provided them, a land they couldn't secure, they, they send uh, five spies north. 
And these spies go into this uh, region here called Ephraim, right here. This is the land of another tribe right there. So they send the five spies into that land. The plan is for the spies to keep going north. But when they arrive in Ephraim, they come across a, a young Levite who has been hired by a guy by the name of Micah. Now, this is not Micah the prophet in the Old Testament. This is another Micah, so as we don't disparage the prophet. But, but this Micah apparently had some cash, and so he hires this young Levite to be his own personal priest. So that's what the kid is hired for. You know, he's probably 16, 18 years old, something like that. And then the other thing that, that we discover is Micah has all of these idols. He's, a, he's a, kind of a closet idol worshiper. And, and so the place is filled with all these idols. And these five spies, they come in and they meet with the young Levite. We don't know whether they actually meet with Micah or not, but they do get to see all of Micah's idols. And so the spies, they, they look at the uh, young priest and they say, hey, we're planning on going north, moving our whole tribe up north, and uh, we're going to be looking for some property to, to basically take over. Are we going to be successful in our endeavor? And the young priest says, yep, you're going to be fine. So the, the spies are emblazoned to, to continue to go on uh, their journey. And so that's exactly what they do. They end up going uh, 100 miles to the north up to this area right up in here where you see the word Dan. And that is a place called Laish or Leshem. It went by the same name back then. So now it's called, it was called Dan, but back then it was called Laish or Leshem. Now, they get up into this land, and in the process, the, the spies discover that the people who live it there are just these quiet people. They're, they're, they're very content with their life, that everything is, is going well in the world. They don't have any natural enemies. Nobody really lives close to them who can actually mess with them. Uh, the, the place where they're living is extraordinarily fertile. It's a, a great place to, to raise crops and to, to have cattle and things like that. And on top of it all, the people are crazy wealthy. These guys spies have felt like they hit the gold mine. So what they do is they go back down, they travel 100 miles south, they go and find the balance of their Danite people, they gather up 600 armed men, and they begin to make their way back up to Laish or Leshem. That's where they're headed to. And lo and behold, on their way, they end up in Ephraim, and they run back into their priest friend. And so they look at their priest friend and they say, hey, you know, it's kind of silly that you're a priest for just one guy. Wouldn't you rather be a priest for a whole lot of guys? And uh, he's like, yeah, I think that's probably a good idea. I would like to do that. And then the other thing that they do is not only do they take the priest, but they also go in and they take all of Micah's idols. And so they've gathered up his priest, they've gathered up all of his idols, and Judges 18, 27 to 31 picks up the story. This is what it says. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made, the idols, and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting. And they struck them with the edge of the sword, and they burned the city with fire. 
And there was no deliverance because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in a valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. They had, they, then they rebuilt the city and lived in it, and they named the city Dan after the, the name of Dan their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at first, and the people of Dan set up the carved images for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So flushed with a brand new priest and a bunch of idols, the army travels north to Laish. And they attack the peaceful people living there, just like the, the viper attacks the horse that has the rider. And they kill all of them. They burn down their city. They take over their land. They ultimately build a new city. They set up the idols for themselves, and they begin to worship false gods. You see, one of the challenges of being a Christian is not simply accepting God's provision for our lives, but also joyfully embracing it, especially when it's not as comfortable or pleasant as we would like it to be. You see, many times as Christians, we discover that the, the place that God has placed us in this life is not always easy. In the beginning, it seems great, but we dwell there for a while and things don't work out in the manner that we had originally hoped for. And that's exactly what happened to the Danites. God provided them a, a specific possession in the promised land. And uh, he told them to stay in that land and to subdue it. And they attempted to do that which God had called them to do. But for some reason, for a reason that, that only God knows, they were unable to subdue the people. And so they're faced with a choice. Do, do we believe in the promises of God? Even though the things aren't working out in the way that we think or in the time frame that, that we desired, is that what we do? Do we stay confident in the, in the promises of God? Or do we ultimately take matters into our own hands? And not surprisingly, the Danites take matters into their own hands. They leave the land that God has promised them. They destroy an innocent people. And in the end, they turn their backs on God and they begin to worship idols made by human hands. And you know what? You and I, we are not immune from doing the exact same thing. Many times God calls us to the place where he wants us to be and he calls us to be faithful in the midst of that place. And in the beginning, we're excited. Because we know that we're in the center of God's will. And it feels really good. But then, something happens. Things don't turn out the way that we thought that they should. You see, sometimes... When we're in the middle of God's will, the fact of the matter is that it's going to be hard. 
Now, there are a lot of prosperity gospel preachers out there who are going to tell you that's not the way that God works. That if only you have enough faith, everything's going to be absolutely fine. I'm here to tell you that is not what God's Word teaches. Sometimes things come our way. We can be as faithful as we can possibly be, and sometimes things don't go the way that we think they should go. Sometimes, in the midst of living in the middle of God's will, illness comes. Or we lose a loved one. Or we battle with infertility. Or we get frustrated at the behavior of a child or a parent or a sibling who's really making our life hard. Sometimes we experience betrayal or rejection. Sometimes we're part of a church family that leaves us down or hurts us. Sometimes our job or career that we worked so hard to get doesn't turn out the way that we thought that it was going to turn out. You name the disappointment, and it can happen. And it can happen right when you are in the center of God's will. And when that happens, it's easy to conclude that, that God has deserted us or, or that, that somehow we have, have missed his plan, we haven't understood him. And it's then when we need to be very careful and we need to be very prayerful about what we do next before we ever think about heading into another direction. Because in the midst of our wandering, we, like the Danites, might end up hurting other people and exchanging our worship of the one and only true God for idols made by human hands. And as we talk about this, I can't help but think about the Old Testament individual called Job. Here is a man who is is blameless and upright, one who fears God, one who is turned away from evil. Clearly, the dude is living in the center of God's will. And then, without warning, his world completely falls apart. His kids are killed. His fortune vanishes. His body is is wrecked with all kinds of illness. If anybody knew tragedy, if anybody knew disappointment, the dude's name is Job. And in the midst of it all, if he doesn't have enough problems, his wife comes along and says, you know, from my perspective, if I were you, curse God and die. That's what she tells him. And if Job's wife is anything like my wife, you want to listen to her because you love her and you care about her. And she's probably given you good advice the entirety of your life. But this woman comes along and says, curse God and die. And Job looks at his wife and he says something that you and I should never, ever forget. He says to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. He's not telling her that she's foolish. He's saying, you're speaking like a foolish woman. He says, shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. 
You see, when God's promises don't turn out the way that we expect or like, may we be less like the Danites and might we be more like Job. May we accept both good and evil in the process, and in the process not sin against God. Now, next in line for the blessing is a guy by the name of Gad. I've never met a Gad ever in my life. If anyone's ever met a Gad, you'll have to let me know. Kind of an unusual name, but Gad gets this very brief prophecy slash blessing. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. And like many of Jacob's sons, there's not a whole lot written about Gad So we have to look at the tribe that's made up of his descendants to figure out what in the world is going on. And we learn from the the book of Numbers that that the tribe of Gad, the Gadites, they were flush with livestock. Apparently when Moses had rescued the Israelites uh, out of the promised land and they had basically taken all the stuff from the Egyptians, the Gadites had taken some cattle. And they, they, they must have been really good cattle ranchers or whatever you call them, and they've multiplied these livestock. They've got tons and tons of of livestock. And as Moses is nearing the end of his life, he and and all of the people of of Israel, they're on the eastern shore of the Jordan River, and they want to go west, ultimately into the promised land. And, And there in the eastern shore of the river, they have displaced these, these people called the Amorites. They haven't got rid of them, but they've shoved them out of Dodge. And the land where uh, the Israelites are on the east side of the Jordan River is crazy fertile. It's got lots of land for grazing. And so the, 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 the tribe of Gad, they see this, and they say to Moses, they say, hey, Moses, let us stay here. And I want to show you where these folks are. So here's another map. So here's the, the land of Gad. Here's the, the Jordan River. Moses is stuck here. He's not going to be allowed to go across this river. This is Gad here. He's not going to be allowed to go across this river because he's sinned against God. It's going to be ultimately Joshua's job. But the Gadites, they end up settling in this land right here. Now Moses is not real keen about giving these guys this land. Because he, said, he knows that, that the land isn't going to really start getting distributed until they ultimately enter the promised land. And so what he's worried about is if he gives the land to the Gadites, that they're going to just settle down, kick their feet back, hang out in a hammock, and while all the rest of the tribes are, are ultimately going to be fighting to get into the promised land, the Gadites are like, hey, we got our stuff, you're on your own. And so Moses is like, no, 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 that's not going to work. I'm not going to give you this property unless you promise me that you are going to fight. And the Gadites are like, let us build some stables, let us build some paddocks, let us put some fences up, let us get our our, our livestock settled in this land, and then we'll go fight for you. And so that's exactly what they do. They, They get everything put together, and they go and prepare to fight. But here's the problem. By settling in this fertile land and not getting rid of the Amorites completely, the Gadites are constantly having to defend these cattle. They're constantly having to protect themselves. So their desire to go and fight other battles is not that great. 
And as I think about this, and I think about the tribe of Gad, I think about the phrase called, be careful what you ask for. Because sometimes we ask for things that probably aren't the best things in the world. And so these people, they see the land was fertile for livestock, which is great, but it also is dangerous, so they got to constantly fight to protect it. And sometimes that's what happens to us. We ask God for, for something that seems that it's going to be perfect. God, if I only have this, I'll be happy. Everything will be great and wonderful. And God gives it to us, but it doesn't mean that struggles are not going to come our way. Sometimes opposition is going to show up. And what we do about the opposition matters. Will we stay and fight, or will we give in to the opposition and squander which God has given us? And the decision that we make has significant ramifications on our future and the future who come after us. And so that's what happens here, is the Gadites, they're hot and cold. Sometimes when they get called to go into battle, they go in, into battle, and they do what God wants them to do. Other times they're like, no, 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 we got our own problems. And, and, and what happens through this is their life is just a, a continued wreck of, of just fight a battle, get some relief, fight a battle, get some relief, all because they were basically impatient. Next is the tribe of Asher. Asher's the third son of a concubine who receives a blessing. Verse 20 tells us about him. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Like, what is that about? You know, is he like going to, you know, have a job as a chef at the Hershey Hotel or something? I have no clue what's going on here. But basically what we see here is the tribe of Asher, they get to live the good life. Out of all of the other tribes of Israel, Asher gets the bonus land. And in Joshua 19, we're told that the land that they inherit has roughly about 35 miles of beachfront property. So let me show you where these guys get it. If you're looking for property on the Mediterranean Sea, you want to hang out where the tribe of Asher was located. Basically, this is the southern part of the, the country of Lebanon. This is the northern part of Israel. Now, there's lots of battles that get fought between Israel and Lebanon, but this property here is primo territory. So here's where we're looking at, right there, from Sidon to Tyre, it's the nation of Asher. But not only do they've got 35 miles of beachfront property, they've got something else. The land is crazy fertile. You can grow tons of crops there, and on the east side of their land between Asher and Naphtali is a mountain range, a huge mountain range. And Asher happens to be on what's known as the windward side of the mountain. And for anybody who remembers like, you know, eighth grade geography or anything like that, I'm proving that I did pay attention at the Central Dolphin School District. In eighth grade geography, you're taught that on the windward side of a, a mountain, especially when there is water that the wind comes over, you're going to get tons of rainfall. But when you're on the leeward side of the mountain, on the opposite side of the mountain where Naphtali is, you get no rain. That's the desert. So these guys, they've got this amazing land. 
they, they've got a great view. They're, they're able to deal with lots of, of uh, commerce through the sea. They've got thousands upon thousands of fertile acres of land. They've got abundant rainfall. But like the Danites, the, the tribe of Asher, they've got a problem. They can't fully drive out the inhabitants. They try and they try and they try to drive out the inhabitants, but they're unsuccessful. But unlike the Danites, they don't give up. They stay in the midst of God's provision, even though it's hard. Now, they don't do everything well, because what happens when they're called upon by this Old Testament judge by the name of Deborah to fight Israel's army, they're like, ah, or fight with Israel's army, like, nah, I don't think so. This, this, this view of the Mediterranean, it's way too nice right now. I, I mean, my, 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 my wives and daughters, they're swimming. I need to protect them. I can't go fight somebody else's battle, basically. Yet later, when Gideon comes along and asks them to, to per, uh, engage in his battles, they say, yeah, so they're, they're cold one moment, they're hot another moment. Yet in spite of these failures, God continues to bless the tribe of Asher. So much so that when we make our way all the way to the New Testament, to the book of Luke, in the second chapter of Luke, uh, Mary and Joseph are, are bringing the eight-day-old baby Jesus into the temple to be dedicated. And there in the temple, there is a, a prophetess by the name of Anna, who is from the tribe of Asher. And she is the very first person to actually declare that this baby is the redeemer of Israel. So even though Asher messed up and things like that, God puts a, 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 a special blessing in their way where, where one of their descendants actually recognizes who the baby Jesus is. And as such, the tribe of Asher reminds me of God's grace. God provides incredible blessings to you and me. They may not be 35 miles of beachfront property on the Mediterranean Sea. They may not be lucrative uh, commercial contracts or countless acres of lush farmland, but they're blessings nonetheless. And you know what? If we actually took the time to count the blessings that God has given us, we would never, ever stop. I, I, it just, if I just start taking a little walk and start thinking to myself, how blessed am I? I, I, I was blessed to be born in, in the United States of America. I was blessed to be born with a mom and dad who loved me. I was blessed to be, to be born healthy. I was blessed to, to have an education, to have food, to have been cared for. And, 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 and that's just when I'm, I'm still pooping in my pants, basically. You know, I mean, that's all, I mean, it's crazy. And, and you go forward? I mean, think about how many incredible blessings we have. Yet in the midst of those blessings, if you're like me, you blow it all the time. We, we, many times, we fail to hold up our end of the bargain. 
God does what he says he's going to do. We don't do what we say we're going to do. Many times we begin to worship the blessings rather than the blesser. Many times we choose sin over obedience. But rather than crushing you and I like a bug, like we deserve, I mean, every one of us, we, we, we deserve the fullness of God's wrath. I, I mean, it, let's be honest with one another. It, it, God knows what you're thinking. If, if your spouse or your employer really knew the thoughts that go through your mind, would they actually keep you around? God sees everything. He ought to crush us instantaneously, yet he doesn't do that. Instead, what does he do? In this amazing, incredible way, God begins to draw us back to himself. And, and, and he does that through this incredibly underappreciated gift called the discipline of God. That's how he works. And that discipline that he gives us, it ultimately, it leads us, if we're, if we're wise and if we're humble, it leads us to repentance, which ultimately leads to restoration. Listen to, to the words of Ephesians. There is so much comfort in the beginning of Ephesians. Listen to this. The beginning doesn't actually start out very good, to be honest. And you, Mike, you can insert your own name there. We're dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Mike, you followed the course of this world. Mike, you followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You know, we look at all the violence that's going on in the world, and, and, and whether it's in the capital and or in the streets of a big city, wherever it is, we look at that violence and we think we would never do that. But the reality is, that stuff's in our heart. If given the right opportunities, that's what people do. Because why? We're dead in our sins and trespasses, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and as a result, we're what? By the nature, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. God's to pour his wrath out on us, destroy us. That's what we deserve. We all go around thinking, oh, I'm such a good person and stuff like that. That's insane talk. God should pour his wrath out on us like crazy. Me in the front of the line. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we're flipping God the bird, even when we're telling him we don't want anything to do with you, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable 
riches of his grace and kindness to who? To us in Christ Jesus. For Mike, by grace you have been saved through faith. And Mike, this is not your own doing. Lest you be so stupid to think that it is. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one at all, not king, not president, not speaker of the house, not your favorite politician, not your favorite business leader, so that no one can boast. You see, even in the midst of our greatest failure, God's mercy and love and grace overwhelms our sin. What other faith system offers that? What other faith system can can take someone who is completely despicable in the eyes of the world and redeem them? Tell me one. Only Christianity. That brings us to the final brother we're going to examine, Naphtali. His blessing is found in verse 21. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. I'm in my office. I read that. I'm like, what is this? What am I going to do with this? What, what, I mean, Naphtali's got to be thinking, what in the world are you saying, Dad? I, I'm, I'm, I'm a guy, and you're telling me that I'm a doe? And I'm going to bear fawns? This is some twisted kind of thing going on. You're thinking, God. So I'm like, there's no way I'm going to figure this thing out on myself. So we, we've got, Pastor Ben and I and Bonnie, we've got a stack of commentaries about this high on Genesis that we've been working through. And, 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 and we read, you know, you only got to read, you know, each one maybe there's 10 pages in or something like that for whatever chapter you're looking at. So I pull out the commentaries. I'm like, Surely James Montgomery Boyce is going to explain to me what this is about. Nope. Surely the, 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 the New International uh, Commentary is going to explain this to me. I, I'm reading, nobody's got any answers. As a matter of fact, James Montgomery Boyce, who actually paid attention when he was in Hebrew class as opposed to me, all right, that was supposed to give you a little bit of a chuckle, or maybe it makes you very sad that you have a pastor that didn't pay attention in Hebrew class. But Hebrew's crazy hard. I was just glad to survive it. But in the Hebrew language, I mean, little dots, a tiny little dot in the middle of the word changes the complete word. And so basically what happens is when I read James Montgomery Boyce, he basically comes out and says, well, if you go with the, the most reliable of the original Hebrew manuscripts that we have, the way that the translation actually comes out is not Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fonts. Because he, he, he says what happens is there is a, 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 you need the dot in the one word for beautiful fawns. And if the dot's not there, it means something else. And this is what it means without the dot in the middle of the thing. Naphtali is a doe set free. He utters beautiful words. Now I'm like, what does that mean? 
You got a doe that's talking? I, don't, I, I got Mr. Ed talked when I was a kid, all right? I get that. But a doe that's talking? So to be completely honest, I have no idea what that says. None at all. And actually, if you have an ESV Bible and you look at the end of that, uh, that verse, you're going to see the little number one there. And it's a footnote that takes you down to the bottom. And they show you the alternate translation that, that's going on here. But here's something very important about the tribe of Naphtali that you actually need to know about. And it comes from the land which was given to them. The land which they received was in the very northern part of the promised land, which encompasses the entire western half of the Sea of Galilee. Here's the map again. This is the land of Naphtali. This is the Sea of Galilee, and they've got the vast majority around the Sea of Galilee and all of this land here. So that's where they're located at. This is Naphtali. This is basically what's known as Galilee of the Gentiles. And the prophet Isaiah spoke of Naphtali in Isaiah 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was, was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. In other words, it was hard to live there. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way to the sea. That's the Sea of Galilee. The land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, perhaps those words are familiar to you. But I guarantee you the next words that I'm about to write or to read that comes right after it are crazy familiar. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It will be in the land of Naphtali, Galilee of the Gentiles, that Jesus comes on the scene. And the majority of his life is going to be spent in that land. And it's going to be there in that land that he calls 11 of his 12 disciples. It is going to be there in that land where he performs his first miracle in Cana of turning water into wine. It will be there where he preaches the Sermon on the Mount. It will be there where he feeds 5,000 men and countless women and children with five loaves and two fish. And it will be there that Jesus asks his disciples the same question that he asked you and me. But who do you say that I am? To which Peter, a man, a human being, no different than you and me, full of flaws and struggles, but full of hope, answers with these words. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And may the words of Peter spoken in the land of Naphtali some 2,000 years ago, be burned into our mind. May it overflow from our hearts. May we, comp 
proclaim to a world that is losing its mind that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the Most High. May He and He alone be the one that we realize that, that He is the one who satisfies God's wrath for our sin. He's the one who tears down the walls that divide us. He's the one that reconciles enemies and heals the brokenhearted and writes injustice and transforms lives and rises and disposes kings. And in the process, he is the one who changes worlds. And while the world might put their trust in politicians and platforms, and policies, and power, and privileges, or pharmaceuticals, or prognosticators, or any other P that you can think of. We place our trust in the name of the Lord God, Jesus Christ, our King and Savior. And may that be how you and I live. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for this time that we can come together. Lord God, we live in a crazy time. Father, the events that occurred uh, this past Wednesday are unthinkable. But Heavenly Father, if we open our minds a little bit, Lord, the unthinkable happens all the time. Tribes of people extinguish other tribes of people. Wars are fought. Lord, we live in a wrecked up world. We live where, where I just learned three young people die in a car accident, Heavenly Father, on Route 22. Their, their families' lives shattered in a heartbeat. So God, where do we turn? Lord, do we turn to our own devices, to our own human wisdom that it's actually brought us to this place? Do we just keep repeating over and over and over again all the same stuff that has just wrecked everything? Or do perhaps we try something different, God? Do perhaps we try to live out what you call us to do in Romans chapter 12? Lord, would you help us to live authentic Christian lives? lives of humility and grace and peace and love where we offer forgiveness and we seek to apologize when we have done wrong. Lord, where we carry one another's burdens. Lord, where we weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Lord, where, where we, when we see injustice, that, that Lord God, we don't turn a blind eye to it, but we fight against it. And Lord, when those seek to divide us, Heavenly Father, we push them aside so that we might be one as you and your Father are one. Guide us in these challenging days, dear God. And it's through your Son's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.